it was a supply ship to American bases in Japan. So we'd, we'd go to Hawaii, San Francisco, and then we'd, we'd sail across the ocean to the Yokosuka Sasebo and to the Subic Bay in the Philippines. And when, when, and I was a medic, so when, when we, when we'd get to these ports, then the, then these, uh, the crew would go on shore, and I was quite young at the time, and when I'd go on shore with these guys, you know, they'd end up in these incredible fights. They'd get so drunk, and they'd start breaking bottles and slashing each other, and if they're, I mean, they usually they'd look for, uh, you know, another ship, or a, a British ship, or an Australian ship, you know, and have a fight with, with these. And if, if there was no, no other people to fight with, then they'd, then, they, then they'd turn on themselves, they'd fight amongst themselves. And sometimes, you know, I'd, be in, I'd have the duty at night, and I'd have to spend all night uh, taking care of the cuts, gashes on these men. You know, slash each other's faces with broken glass. Yeah. I couldn't understand. You know why? <laughs> why anyone would want to do that? But <laughs> they did. That was ordinary. So obviously, it was exciting. You know, it was, it was something that that what you start, you get. You know, that fighting. Uh, tendency is uh, in, in a man that has not cultivated any refinement in his life and has no no kind of uh, altruism to it nothing higher than just the you know the, the 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 feeling of power and strength that is that men like very much so in in say in a in a religious aspiration you're you're uh, you are you know, you're setting your goal for the highest, you know, the total realization uh, in which all these things can be reflected, both the refinement, because refinement isn't, is also unsatisfying. You know, just as the more you attach to refined things and good taste and aesthetics and, and good manners and culture and all that, then, then the more you suffer from the way the world is, because most of the world's not that refined. So you, you're always getting offended. And there's a, there's a man, English man, lives near Chithurst Monastery. He's very kind of cultured, gentlemanly type, was a, uh, quite elderly now, and, and was a, quite a famous architect. And, and uh, that man is offended by almost everything in life. <laughs> He and his wife just have to hide away in their most precious, utterly beautiful cottage in West Sussex with this uh, absolutely paradisical garden, flowers and, and you know, beautifully, beautifully landscaped and, and a life that is based on just being terribly precious. And, and then anything, you know, like anything less than that offends him so much he can't cope because he <laughs> so the amount of suffering that he has is is you know is due to the attachment to such high standards that that the ordinariness in, of people can only be offensive to him 
So that is, you know, you're setting yourself up to be miserable by, by, <laughs> by just being refined and and be and and attaching to to uh, beauty as a, as an end in itself. Yes, Pat? Try to try to listen to it. Just uh, right, and uh, be aware of it, like this is a physical, because uh, you know you can often I feel it in my feet. They twitch. <laughs> uh, like they already want to get up and go. <laughs> And be uh, accepting of it, of the fe- of the physical kind of feeling. If you you know trying to to get rid of it, that's suppressing it. Then just listen to it. This this sense of uh, you know not wanting to be still or wanting to do something or go or, and just uh, but take the attitude of a, of a witness rather than of a, somebody who's making any judgments about it. And use it as a, as a development of patience in being patient with it. Because patience is something that uh, we all need uh, a lot, you know, to really develop that. Because we, we are restless, you know, and, the, and impatient. And the so I, I always, you know, Ajahn Chah told me when I first went to his monastery is to practice being patient with things. And uh, since I couldn't understand very much, because all the instructions were in Thai and I couldn't speak Thai, then, then uh, I, you know, he just say, just practice being patient. And so I did, uh, and I found that very helpful. And uh, as just. Uh, an attitude of just learning to bear with the things that, you know, with boredom, with, with restlessness, with uh, anger, uh, with the pain in the body, things like this. I'd use it as a, to develop that, a more patient mind. But looking toward the future, you know, we start say this is the end, moving towards the end of the retreat. So then the mind is looking forward to the future, thinking about what we have to do. You see, so this is this is the way it is. Then when we say at the beginning of the retreat, the the end of the retreat seems far away. So the the beginning is is your you know then. Then you you uh, you can you know if you're dreading the retreat, I think oh two weeks, a long time, and then then uh, you know maybe you're thinking oh I have two weeks uh, of retreat, wonderful, long time, and then say in the mid retreat you think one week left, and then that thought then can that can think then you can think 
well, that's still a pretty long time, one week, you know. And, or you think, God, another week of this? <laughs> or or you, you start thinking of, of what you have to do when you leave. And then as it draws closely towards the end, then the mind will, is always going to kind of be thinking about leaving and, uh, and all the things that one has to face or do when, when you go back. So that's, that's just, you know, don't take it personally, but uh, take it as, a, as just how the mind works, you know, how it's like this. So that you're, you're kind of willing to, to, for it to be that way, you're not, you know, I, should, I shouldn't feel this restlessness at the end of the retreat, I should, you know, shouldn't be this way. Because then you're, then it, then it's, then you're going to try to resist it or suppress it, and and you're going to make your life, make yourself miserable by doing that. But recognize that this is this is what the belief, the perception of time, beginning and ending. Uh, I've got to do something afterward, and I've got to face something after the, this retreat, or uh, you know, the whole the kind of things that 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 might come into your mind. You're, you're, you're just wit observing it as life is like this practice. You know, and this, this way, this is how the mind, you know, just with its belief and its conditioning to, to grasp the perceptions of time as being very real, then, then we, uh, this is what the result. So the more you understand it, the less you're going to be kind of taken over by restlessness. That's why restlessness uh, is really, we need to, to be patient and to investigate, the, investigate it so that we, through understanding that then its power over us is, yeah, fades away. Because those are restless thoughts, aren't they? Like, the end of the retreat, oh, I've got, you know, and then I've got something to do. I've got to, you know, all these decisions to make, I've got to, you know, I've got to go home and, and there's this and that, and, and this brings up this very strong restless, these are restless thoughts. I used to, to I, I found very helpful to think of this here. Nothing to do and nowhere to go. And then the mind, but you know you've got to, and you've got to, and the, <laughs> and the mind would, would always, the compulsiveness of it, you know, the kind of urgency of it. There's, there's so much to do and so many places to go and, and, and you should be, you know, you should be doing all kinds of things. And, and then I keep saying, no, nothing to do, nowhere to go. And I just kind of enjoy just that sense of, of not having to do anything and go anywhere. Just be where you are. Good enough. A sense of, of just relaxing and, and just not the sense of, I have to do something. I have to go somewhere. And those, those were very, very, you know, my, my mind was so, the sense of having to do things was so strong in it, in such a compulsive nature, that I had to really use, like, don't have to do anything as a kind of 
as an antidote to the, to the kind of feelings always that you've got to do something. And as I tell this story about this, this reoccurring dream I had the first few years of my monastic life. And uh, it'd always be around, I'd dream this, that, that I was going, like going into a coffee shop and then sitting down to have a cup of coffee and then the thought was, you shouldn't be here. You should be studying for the exam. So then, then, then this dream would keep, I'd keep having this dream at night in different, you know, it wasn't always this, the same situation, but the theme was always, you shouldn't be doing what you're doing, you should be studying for the exam. So I kept thinking, you know, I've been a monk for several years, and I, what is it? there's a message in that somehow. You know? <laughs> Otherwise I wouldn't, I wouldn't be dreaming this you know, so regularly. And of course, you know, in graduate school you get, you know, there's always this tension in your mind. You study for the exam and, you know, you go out on Saturday night and, and, and then this thought, you know, you shouldn't, you know, you, you've got to study, you shouldn't be out doing this. And so that this was a kind of natural result of that. But it was in a situation that really didn't demand that kind of, that feeling wasn't there, I mean, in, in, the, in the situation around. So I tried to think, maybe, maybe Ajahn Chah's got some kind of real test for me. <laughs> or, you know, maybe there's something going to come up where I'm, you know, really going to be, you know, put to the test. Maybe I've got to do something more. I've got to practice harder. Maybe I haven't been practicing hard enough. Maybe I shouldn't, uh, you know, I should, you know, do more anapanasati. Or maybe I should study the, the suttas and, and do all kinds of things, you know, the sense of that I should be doing something because of this examination that, that's looming up. And so, but none of it seemed right. Like I, was, I was really quite diligent, actually, those years, and I was doing everything that I could, you know, that was, you know, I felt was right to do and even of use. So then, one day after this dream, I suddenly thought, I suddenly realized what it was, that, that there was this illusion that there was this examination. But there wasn't any exam. It's just that I thought there was an examination, that there wasn't. <laughs> and just the idea, that idea that there's a big examination I have to pass, would always bring this, you know, wherever you were, you couldn't enjoy anything or really delight in anything because as soon as you, you had a cup of coffee around it, you think, you should be studying for the exam or, or you know, you'd, 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 you'd be maybe contemplating the, the trees or the whatever, the, the waterfall and you think, you shouldn't be here, you should be studying for the exam. And this kind of, uh, kind of compulsive habit I developed. And then in monastic life I thought, there's no examination. And so I just, I saw it, it's just a, a compulsive habit I developed. And then the, the dream, never ha I've had it since. It just dropped away. So it was a relief just to know there's no, there's an, there's no, no examination. <laughs> so then you can kind of just be with what you're doing. You know, you can, you don't, that kind of tension uh, fellow, you know, that you, you've got to be 
you, you've got to work harder. You've got to be more diligent. You, you're too lazy. You've got to, you haven't done enough. You, you've got to do something more. It was su such, a, such a strong feeling in my mind that it, it, would, it would interfere with everything I was doing. So you really weren't, couldn't enjoy very much or couldn't relax because even the idea of relaxing was, you know, you should be studying. <laughs> and that, that uh, then that idea of nowhere to go, nothing to do, kind of, I found helpful. Just to rest and trust in being alive and breathing and, and not uh, feel I have to make decisions and solve all my problems and do everything and, you know, organize everything and constantly kind of, you know, be concerned endlessly about the worldly conditions because they, they, they never cease. There's always more to do on the worldly level. There's always more. No matter how much you do, there's always going to be more to, more than that. And, and you, if, you're, if you're diligent, you can always work harder than you do. And you could, you know, and, and uh, then we tend to, you know, tend to oftentimes be self-critical. So we, we would maybe look at even uh, our kind of reading a book or even meditating as somehow not really being responsible. And uh, we shouldn't be doing it because we've got to get ready for this examination, which is merely a, a habit uh, that we've developed. So, in uh, say in in, in in say relax relaxing taking it easy, sense of with 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 Western people this is very important because we are we tend to be so compulsive. And with the, with say in Thailand, oftentimes the Ajahn Chah would teach the Thai monks very differently, like because. In Thailand, it's a it's a pretty easygoing society, so that they 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 have a saying. My bin right doesn't doesn't really matter, you know. The kind of you know there, there, there's not this sense of urgency, in, in, especially in the rural parts of Thailand. So so that monks can ordain, and they they don't oftentimes have this sense of urgency to practice. So Ajahn Chah would try to kind of you know, create this sense of urgency for them, you know, so that that would get them going. Uh, but when, when you use those same, those same attitudes with Westerners, then we, we would tend to be, have this, this sense of urgency already, and, and we, we would really, uh, you know, we'd be, we'd be working hard and, and really kind of burning out with all our, you know, force and willpower and obsessiveness. So, with, with Western, most Westerners, you have to try to hold back. Don't move so fast. Don't <laughs> slow down, relax. <laughs> in, like in, in uh, Ajahn Pasano's monastery, a lot of German, German mentality is, is really, you know, isn't it? It's, you get that going into a kind of obsession, and it, you go. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
also affects how we look at this day. Just that perception alone, the last day. To note that, just to be aware of how what we put on to life, uh, of course, has its influence. Ability to think and create perceptions. Actually, this is just Santitiko, Akaliko, Ehipasko, Panayiko, Tamma. Here and now, timeless. But our ability to perceive, think, time-bound conditions, we, we, we see the, that today is the last day, and that's a conventional reality. So this, the Buddha made very clear what is conventional reality, the, the, see, the appearances of things, and ultimate reality. Ultimate reality, there's no self timeless, immortal. No suffering. No greed, no hatred, no delusion. Conventional reality is all about the various uh, ways things move and change. Their beginnings, endings, birth and death. The, The Opposites, the dualities, the male or female, the day and night, black and white, good and bad, right and wrong. So when we contemplate Dhamma, then we, we, we can put the, the conventional realities into, the, into that perspective of the conditions, the sankharas, the sankata dhammas, the that which arises and ceases. Then the realization of the unconditioned Dhamma, the Asankata Dhamma. So this is when we, when we uh, reflect on Dhamma, this is, these, this is the way to do it. To, to keep reminding yourself of this is the way it is, in this way of Dhamma, of the Buddha knowing the Dhamma. And the worldly conditions are the, the, the Lokya Dhammas, the praise and blame, happiness, suffering, personalities, men and women, uh, all the kind of problems, difficulties, complications, uh, confusions, convolutions, and that, that that we create out of our involvement, our not knowing the Dhamma, we tend to to uh, believe in the worldly Dhammas as as ourselves, as much more than what they are. They have their urgency, their their importance, their trivial or their great. Life or death, me and mine, what I think, what I feel. (coughs) 
the conditioned dhammas are all ranged from the, everything in the psychic realm to the sense realm. So all psychic experience, whether it's no matter how subtle uh, it might be or how horrendous it might be, um, all kinds of miraculous powers and and that whole realm of of that that is uh, that we call psychic phenomena is still conditioned dhamma, isn't it? It arises, ceases, it's impermanent, and it's not self. As well as all sensory experience, what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and think, you know, the sense plane, sensory consciousness, material world. So that you, you have a perspective and you can see that all conditions from the most subtle, uh, ethereal, uh, refined, mental to the most coarse material conditions, that, that, that takes in the whole range from A to Z. So that, you, that, that, that is a way of, of putting it all in, a, in the in the way of reflecting on Dhamma. All that is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. That includes every subtle feeling, every gross, coarse thing. All of it is what is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. That's not dismissing or saying it doesn't matter or that it, you know, there's no judgment against the conditioned realm. It's just pointing putting it in a perspective for you so you can you can see it in perspective rather than just be caught in the power and gravity of and the urgencies of sensory or psychic experience the self, the self view is attached to that is uh, you know people want powers and they want special messages from god and they they want to, this, this ego always wants to be special and, and gifted and, and there's a, such a strong, uh, the, the real egotistical person uh, spends a lot of try, time trying to believe in their own uniqueness. And we, we do that to people. We hear somebody has a title. In England, if you if you hear somebody, Lord so-and-so, is coming to the monastery, it's different than Joe Blow, isn't it? Lord Winterbottom is, is not, not Joe Blow. It has, <laughs> it has a, uh, you feel immediately that there's, it's something special somebody important. And so titles, they have titles, monks oftentimes have rather grand titles. You have in Thailand you have Tanjau Kuns and, and uh, Prakrus and Somdets and Sangharajas and, and you hear that Somdet so-and-so is going to visit your monastery. It's not just ordinary old bhikkhu.
I remember one time one amusing case because the the this uh, Sidupa Tolku was visiting England. Thai Sidupa Tolku. I didn't. I've never heard of. I didn't. I'd never heard of him before. So somebody calls up Chithurst, and they say, "The Thai Sidupa Tolku is coming to England, and he wants to visit Chithurst." And I started. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> they couldn't even know, didn't know what the words meant. But just the urgency, you know, it's not just on a bloke, it's, it's, it's really somebody special. And what do you do with somebody special? You know, you, you, you have to, you know, you can feel that they can't be received just like an ordinary person. So these are the specialness, the titles, being somebody important, being uh, or being just ordinary or nobody. But all of these are conditioned dhammas. So we can we can uh, this way we have when we're contemplating Dhamma, then we, this, is, this is what we, we see the Dhamma, the situation. We can see how just the, the sensitivity and the excitability of, our, of this sensitive state as we react to, to these kind of perceptions. If uh, somebody important with a title or somebody that uh, has, maybe has a bad reputation and say, this person is a real scoundrel and he's coming to the monastery and, and you, 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 have a, you perceive him already as, as some, uh, in that way. That there's a sense of suspicion and, and uh, you better watch this guy kind of feeling when you know, somebody just kind of says something bad about him before he comes. So this is this is the world, isn't it? The world is full of gossip and rumors and important people and nobodies and and ordinary guys and and uh, good and moral and lovely uh, kind of unselfish, uh, dedicated people serving humanity. Then there's vain and silly, foolish and stupid kind of people. But all of these are in perspective of Dhamma, that we, we, we contemplate the Dhamma of it. Like when we're just, just contemplating uh, what a, if somebody says, this important monk is coming, uh, it, one can just observe the, the, uh, you know, what this means on a conventional level, and as then we do what is appropriate, what is right. But we're aware of it as it is. We're not, we're not making anything out of it. We can even watch our own conditioned reactions because we all have conditioned reactions to things. Like if you're, if you're from a kind of ordinary or working class background and, and you have kind of instilled prejudices in your minds against maybe middle class, upper class people, isn't it? Now those are those are conditioned into the mind. So, so if you uh, 
if you're some kind of uh, lower class and you hear somebody, Lord Winterbottom is coming, and you can, you can feel maybe a sense of, <laughs> if you're a communist or, you know, an egalitarian, then you, you can feel this slight negativity or maybe strong negativity. And contemplating that as Dhamma is, then you're, then you're seeing it as it is rather than, than being pulled into the reactions that you, that you have, that you're, that you have believing them to be more than what they are. People, people like to talk about Sai Baba a lot because he can do special things. So uh, Thai people, they love to go to India to, to see Sai Baba, to be able to witness uh, these kind of miraculous feats that he performs. And so this, is, this impresses people, isn't it? They, they talk about him being able to manifest things and out, of, out of his hands and how his, strong his aura is and his presence and, and all of this, this kind of, of uh, talk really is not Dhamma, is it? It is the world. It's about worldly things. Even if I could manifest things out of my hands, you know, and nobody else could, that's still what, is, what arises ceases, isn't it? It's still seeing it as Dhamma. Then we're not kind of overwhelmed or, or just even dismissive or anything. We're just using the flow of life uh, to put it in its proper perspective, not to be deluded by it, no matter if it's kind of a fantastic experience, it's still impermanent, not self. Where people oftentimes are just so impressed by the miraculous or the, the special. And, and uh, very easily... Uh, commit themselves to people who claim special abilities. That there's people that say, I'm, uh, I am a fully enlightened being and that I, uh, I am the guru and you must surrender to me. And a lot of people are willing to do that. One thing is not, be nice to surrender to somebody because if you don't if you if you don't contemplate dhamma very much then you tend to then you tend to have a lot of self-doubt in any kind of confident character says I know the way uh, is sometimes uh, a very attractive uh, alternative you know way of holding yourself up believing in, in the powers of somebody else But that's not Dhamma, is it? It's not Dhamma to, unless, until you see that, until you see your own, you, you know, desire to depend or to, to follow somebody or to, to uh, believe that somebody else is fully enlightened uh, and, and then to 
think that, that you want, you are not. This is, then you're caught in all these kind of worldly reactions. That, that teacher is fully enlightened and I'm not. Not that that's, uh, I'm denying that. That maybe, you know, that's not, that's, uh, that can be conventionally true. But as Dhamma, as, as a reflection on Dhamma, then we're seeing that just the thought, uh, I'm not, and he is, are, these are conditions that arise and cease in the mind. So that you, you can actually see the Dhamma of, 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 of these kind of, uh, kind of powerful experiences. And even your own self-doubt and, and sense of maybe uh, inferiority or inability or uh, then you can, you can see that also as Dhamma. What is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. The more you, you really reflect in this way, the more and more you, you begin to free yourself from the tendency to be to, to just be caught in your reactions, your emotional reactions to everything and, and just caught in that state uh, and blinded by it, made heedless by it. In uh, Buddha Dhamma, there's no, there's no, uh, you know, even if, like, with the, there's no need to to be anybody or to, to, uh, pronounce or announce anything, like the, like in the, the desire to to proclaim yourself, or the desire, or the, the tendency to think of yourself only in maybe as somebody who hasn't gotten anywhere. These are conditions of the mind that you can know. That's why there's these enigmatic statements like, uh, there is the path but nobody's on the path. So then they think, I remember reading that once, and it's a strange thing to say. There's a path, nobody's on the path. And uh, then thinking that, uh, then other people would interpret that, that there is a path, but nowadays humanity is totally incapable of finding it. So nobody's on the path, because humanity has become so degenerate at this time, it's not like the time of the Buddha, where humanity was had much more kind of spiritual uh, uh, possibilities, but now this is the Kali Yuga and we're so degenerate, so utterly hopeless, that there's no way we could ever get on the path. There's a path, but it's just impossible. That's one interpretation. <laughs> That's the hopeless one, isn't it? That's the one that, that, that says, I'm not even going to try because it's impossible. And, uh, and so that this, uh, this, makes, this makes the kind of whole thing up you know, meaningless and of no use. 
But just in following the logic of, the, of Buddhism, then you see that the, the no-self, that, that we are transcending uh, through mindfulness and wisdom all the illusions of separateness. So that the, the idea that there is a path, even that's a convention, isn't it? That's, a, that's still a perception of the mind. But it is, it is to be, it's a path that we can realize through letting go of all the, uh, the, the habit tendencies, the conditions of, of the mind, freeing ourselves from being blinded by those conditions so that there's, there's no sense anymore of, of me being somebody who's on a path or not on a path. That just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't mean anything to say I'm on the path or I'm not on the path. It just doesn't, it becomes meaningless because that whole way of thinking is no longer, has, no longer has the weight and the gravity to, to, uh, to uh, say, convince us of its, of its reality. Sometimes we become overly modest, like in the Sangha. Uh, there's a, it's so, like, in a, it's a disrobing offense for a bhikkhu to proclaim that, he's, that he has attainments when he hasn't, if he's just trying to deceive people, you see. So if, if a Buddhist monk says, I am an enlightened being, and, and he's not, and he, he's doing it to, in order to cheat people and take advantage of them, then... That is a disrobing offense. A monk has to disrobe, and he can never ordain again in this life. It's a serious offense. Then, if, if a monk says he's attained things, uh, and out of but he, it's not in order to delude anyone, but because he's deluded, then it is a, a, a it's not a disrobing offense, but it is still an offense. So that there's this this a sense of if you notice uh, there in uh, Buddhism monks don't generally make any statements about themselves as being attained in any way whatsoever. So, I mean, people would go to Thailand and they'd go to uh, Ajahn Chah and they'd, they'd want to know, is he an arahant? <laughs> these, are, these, are the, these are the kind of ways people think, is, is Ajahn Chah an arahant or, or not? Or is he only a stream enterer? This is how the, the, the mind thinks, isn't it? In terms of a self, of somebody becoming, uh, attaining and achieving a, some kind of high state. Remember, that is uh, the worldly mind. That is, that is conventional reality only. I like to reflect on the when the Buddha after his enlightenment and he 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 decided to to go and teach for the welfare of those with only a little dust in their eyes. So he 
he decided to, these five uh, uh, colleagues of his that had deserted him when he, when he had, uh, when he'd given up strict asceticism. And they, they were very, they were very kind of gung-ho ascetics. And uh, the ascetic Gotama, after a while, saw there's no point in kind of doing all this all the time. It, it just, it just makes life terribly miserable and, and it's, no, it's not the way. So he gave up asceticism and then uh, the his friends, five friends who were with him, saw him uh, receiving this milk rice from this lady. And I suppose milk rice in, in the time of the Buddha was, you know, like eating sweet ice cream or something. You know, if, you, if you've made your reputation as an ascetic eating nettle soup, and then you, then you see me eating ice cream, you're going to think, he's, he's really going degenerate, isn't he? He's going soft. So, <laughs> the hard mind of ascetics, isn't it? It becomes very, when you're an ascetic, you become very conceited. And you, you just, you, you know, you, feel, you become very hard and hardened in your mind. So, they, they kind of haughtily left uh, Gotama uh, because they, they thought he was, he wasn't, he, he was uh, weakening his resolve. But then uh, his, his enlightenment came after that. And then, of course, the story of, of uh, Brahma Sahampati asking him to teach for the welfare of, of uh, those with only little doubt. So he went off to teach these five uh, people, five disciples. And on the way, he was going to Benares, he, uh, he met another ascetic who was very impressed by his kind of radiant aura. And he said, oh, uh, you must have discovered something wonderful. What is it that, that you have learned? And the Buddha said, I am the perfectly enlightened one. And the, the ascetic looked at him in kind of distrust and disbelief and left. So when he went to Benares and he found his five, these five disciples, and when they, the disciples, they saw him coming, they said, here comes that, that Gotama, you know, let's, let's ignore him. And then, but finally as he came near, they began to, they just couldn't do that. So they kind of made a seat uh, properly for him and said, uh, and asked him how he was and so forth. And, and he gave his uh, teaching on the Tamajaka, which is the uh, Four Noble Truths. And so he, 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 he set the Dhamma wheel going, not by saying, I am the all-enlightened one, but he said, there is suffering, there is the origin, there is the cessation, there is the path. So, so that, that wasn't, like if, if just that statement, I am the all-enlightened one, what does that do? If I should make that statement, <laughs> what would that do to your mind? Some of you just would be would walk out of the room. Others, uh, you might believe it. <laughs> Some of you be just probably very polite and embarrassed, but not do anything. 
it's, uh, you know, I'm putting you in a corner, aren't I? Because that's not really a very skillful statement. Because uh, it, it, it makes you react in some way. It doesn't make you reflect, does it? It doesn't make you reflect that that, that is merely a condition that arises and ceases. It puts you in a corner. You have to react to it in some way. Where, say, in, in, uh, in teaching Dhamma, then you say, there is suffering, and, and that, that's encouraging you to reflect upon suffering. Not, not kind of a commandment to believe in suffering, but a, a way of teaching or pointing to something that maybe you've avoided and, and are, have spent your life trying to avoid and refusing to look at it. So it's, a, it's an encouragement, skillful way of teaching to uh, encourage you to awaken to life rather than to have to decide whether I am perfectly enlightened or not. <laughs> it's, that's asking too much of anybody. It's, uh, it, it, uh, it's not Dhamma, is it? That kind of statement, has no, it's no, there's no Dhamma in it. When it is a statement based on a belief that that I am somebody who has become enlightened, because that whole way of thinking is no lo- no longer uh, appropriate to the reflection on Dhamma. We could see the Dhamma of it only through by recognizing that it's sound. If I say it, then you you're hearing it, and that it arises and ceases. You could reflect that your own reactions are, you know, you believe it or don't believe it or are not sure, as, and that arises and ceases. And so you could see the Dhamma of it that way, but the actual statement itself uh, tends to not be phrased in a way that encourages you to reflect. It kind of puts you in a corner to make a decision, and, and therefore it, it's, it's an unskillful uh, statement. One time the, the Dalai Lama was asked about the, being a Dalai Lama and he said, because that, that's a prestigious title, isn't it? So he, he, he just said, that, oh, that's Tibetan culture don't pay any attention to it. He says, I'm a bhikkhu. Because so much is made out of, out of words like that. And he was, he was saying that, that that is not the point. That is not important. Titles and, and all the kind of uh, mystery and, and uh, glamour around uh, the, these kind of titles and figures, because the important thing is is uh, to see the Dhamma. There's nothing wrong with those things, not, not that it's wrong, but it, to be seen in its perspective, then, then it, it's all right. 
It's all right, titles, there's nothing wrong with titles or, or even being special. But, but if that's what we, that's what our practice is, 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 we're practicing in order to become special and have titles, then, then you've, you've got it all wrong. Because that's, even if we should become very special with all the kind of highest credentials, but we've not contemplated Dhamma, then, it, it, then we have, we have we're just a kind of ordinary, ignorant being. We've wasted our time, wasted our life. Now ignorance, as I pointed out once before, has, it has, it's, uh, there's a lot of it or a little of it, it's, it's uh, you know, we, when we attach to, to desires then, we, then there's this endless kind of becoming process taking place and so we go up and down with it, we get high and low and Elated, depressed, get bored, we get fed up, we, we uh, get embittered. Life oftentimes makes us very bitter through the disappointments or the dreariness of a lot of life. We are easily offended. If you, if you have a strong ego, then you're easily offended by everything. And so you, you know, people upset you, people disappoint you, people uh, on, you know, you can always see, you can always interpret whatever people are doing. They don't love you enough and they don't respect you and they, they're, uh, they look down on you or they're, they're not very considerate or sensitive to your feelings or this and so we, we can just live a life just on this state, state of just being offended and always being afraid that somebody's going to upset me. This is a, a hell realm, isn't it? To, to live our lives always in this state of, of tension about possibilities of our feelings being hurt or ourselves being insulted in some way or not appreciated. And so, but the, to see the Dhamma of that, then we can change, we can snap out of it. I used to get offended quite easily, so I used to just watch this sense of, you know, like being offended. This is trying to use it as a Dhamma rather than as some, some kind of personal problem. So when we're insecure and, and uh, when there's not right understanding of Dhamma, then our life is a, a kind of endlessly kind of fraught experience. It's like walking on the edge of a crevasse or a there's always this sense of impending doom and danger and possibility of being being upset or offended by something or other. So that 
that uh, the suffering of life, they, of, of just kind of fairly well-to-do middle-class Americans. Uh, there's a lot of neurosis in, in that because we, we, can, we, are, we can be hurt so quickly and offended so easily, upset. And so in meditation practice, we, we're not trying to become callous and indifferent, but to change the attitude so that these, these feelings, these fears, these kind of emotions can be seen as dhammas. They arise, they cease. So even what hurts you and upsets you, you're transmuting from some, something that's endlessly going to cause you pain to seen it in the right way to the Buddha seeing the Dhamma. So that's why that is a refuge uh, that we that we cultivate Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Just in, say, in practicing in this way to uh, there's a lot of, say, emotional immaturity in most human beings so that that, that uh, kind of we live in a society that doesn't really encourage emotional maturity that here in America it's very much society that that, that keeps you on an le- emotional level of maybe a teenager or even younger where you <laughs> it's the, the idea of you know the consumer mentality is, is you know that, that is it's a consumer society consumer mentality which is still very immature uh, uh, way of being. It's something what I want is like a, a child, a child's mentality. So we we grow up into six foot two or whatever, get a fully mature body and uh, develop our intellects and we find emotionally we're, we're still babies and with sort of kind of inner crying and, and uh, stubbornness and resistance and things like this, just uh, reactiveness and I'm not going to do it and, and uh, you can see it's like some, some people react just like they were, you know, when you start rebelling against your parents any kind of authoritative figure, you know, I'm not going to obey, don't have to do it. And you can see this, this, uh, this sense of rebellion still, still very much the way you react to, say, anyone who, who's in any kind of homologous role, of a parental role, or position of authority. So that we can witness. Just by knowing it, then you're, then you're freeing your, your mind from that more and more. You're just not by saying, I shouldn't be this way. 
because that then you then your intellect your critical mind takes over and tells you how horrible you are for for being that way and it's a hopeless situation in that case because your emotions go I'm not going to do it you can't make me and then your then your intelligent mind says oh you're a stupid idiot and you shouldn't be so selfish and and then you then you feel horrible like you're a horrible person but you haven't resolved the problem at all you just keep kind of reinforcing it but through seeing the dhamma of it then you can it can, the, those those immature feelings and reactions by admitting them into consciousness they can cease they what arises ceases when the, when that when you allow when you realize cessation then they're then they're gone they're just ended they're they're span you're not you're not kind of making them be born again because you have allowed you you're in the there is the buddha seen the dhamma position where you're allowing things to flow according to their nature rather than to through uh, through your fears and desires so this, this is through this door of consciousness, you, you allow these things to present themselves and to pass away from you, to go away from you. And more and more, then you have uh, that kind of liberated mind and resolve these, the, the emotional blockages and fears and that, that hang in your mind and you don't know what to do about in which you take very personally, in which you endlessly criticize yourself for feeling the way you do or being the way you are. So today we keep uh, practicing and so this morning we had our picture taken. <laughs> this is uh, quite a common occurrence. I, I get lonely if I'm not, if the camera isn't being focused on me. <laughs> In England, I don't know what it is about being a Buddhist monk, but it, it makes news and it's sensational. So that everybody wants to make films about Buddhists, Buddhist monks. And at first, it was kind of exciting, you know, to be the center of life. <laughs> After a while, it's downright irritating. <laughs> Then uh, I just began to accept it. They have went, went to Sri Lanka in '86, and uh, the Prime Minister, the then Prime Minister of Sri Lanka, used to visit Amravati, so he, <coughs> he invited me, and they kind of got this kind of red carpet treatment, kind of VIB, very important bhikkhu treatment. <laughs> <laughs> and the price I had to pay for it was that. I, they, I was, you know, had these chauffeured vehicles, and, and, but also had a, 
a van following me with photographers. So, so I had, everywhere I went, I was, I was being photographed. So I have an album of me, uh, pictures of me, uh, standing in front of temples and shrines and monuments. <laughs> And then I went to Thailand afterwards. I went to Thailand and the same thing happened. Somebody wanted, this cameraman wanted to follow me about. So I ended up, you know, going around with it. I began to get kind of attached to this. <laughs> get very attached to your cameraman. Isn't it? <laughs> And they're not there, you get lonely. <laughs> Today at five, I think we'll, we'll meet in here uh, for tea and... Uh, I think we're going to be at the dining area where we'll have books and materials on the tables or sign-up sheets. Right. Unless you have to do it in here.